this week on the Backtable Podcast. And again, when you went to Engine Club in those days, everything was done on an overhead projector. And we and I went up with maybe two fellows and we were racing up from the peninsula because we wanted to show this, you know? Right. But no, this was like, no, it knew. There was no premonition. There was no, no one had any idea we were doing this. <laughs> And so they were shown, you know, abscess drainages, <laughs> catheters and stuff. And we came sort of in the back door and now it's a pretty good crowd there. And Ernie, of course, sat in the front and would comment on all the cases. So any more cases? And so I said, yep, we got some here. So I went <laughs> up and I showed this case and it was such an impressive aneurysm, which went from this giant circle ball to nothing. and. There was just absolute, no one knew what they were looking at. It was just, you know, what? It was magic at that point. It probably looked like magic. And he left the room. And he just left. He just left. He just left. And That's... he went for a smoke or what? Yeah. <laughs> hey guys, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular and interventional. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on Backtable.com. This is Brian Hartley as your host this week. I'm an interventional radiologist living in Silicon Valley and also co-founder of an early stage medical device company. This is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Series, where you will hear stories from physician entrepreneurs who helped shape the endovascular field through medical devices. Before we dive into our topic today, just want to say a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad Radiation Protection Products developed by physicians for physicians and clinically proven to protect during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your health on anything less. Trust RADPAD protection for all your interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com to learn more about radiation safety CME credits for you and your team. Welcome to Dr. Dake. He is the Senior Vice President at the University of Arizona Health Sciences. He's a professor of radiology surgery and medicine. He's also the current president of the Society of Interventional Radiology. He's an internationally known radiologist for his pioneering work in thoracic aortic stent grafts, among many other accomplishments. So Dr. Dake, it is great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much, Brian. This is it. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Awesome. So Briefly, so where are you right now? Are you in Tucson or, or Phoenix? Tucson, and just to clarify for the listeners, as Senior Vice President of Health Sciences at the University of Arizona, my responsibilities include two medical school campuses, as you may recall back mm -hmm. in the day when you were applying to medical schools. Right. Arizona and the University of Arizona is the only university that has two separate medical schools. Obviously, the state of California, Texas, has multiple medical schools, but they're not all part of different campuses. And by that, I mean, they're independent. Whereas we have, they're on uh, both medical schools at the University of Arizona report up to me. However, they do have independent accreditation, independent application acceptance process. In addition to that, we have colleges of nursing, pharmacy, and public health. And we're starting a college of allied health professionals. So all those sort of make a very rich palette that we can sort of draw upon. And that was really important as we sort of address the COVID challenges that we've all faced to have public health, to have nursing and have pharmacy as well as the colleges of medicine. So right now I'm in Tucson, that's our main office. Mm -hmm. uh, 
College of Medicine, Tucson has 120 students per class. College of Medicine, Phoenix has 100 per class, but we're going up to 120. So that's a brief summary of the lay of the land and what I'm doing now. Oh, that's great. That's great. And uh, you were at Stanford for many years and now you're at Arizona. So how's, how's the, the transition to Arizona been and, and how are things going in the IR departments? Yeah, well, in between, uh, I was at Stanford for a number of years and then I went to be chairman of the Department of Radiology at the University of Virginia, where I was very close to the interventionalists and actually had time to, you know, get in their way and sort of kibitz and do mm -hmm. cases. Then I went back to Stanford, where I really sort of focused down on a lot of aortic issues and challenges and sort of tunneled down on that aspect of vascular intervention. And then now, in this sort of last chapter, I've moved over to Arizona. And quite frankly, initially, I wasn't, I didn't think that I would just sort of end up stopping doing clinical work. But, you know, I found out very quickly that this is a very big job with a lot of responsibility obligations. So I haven't really had much of a chance. I do go to aortic and vascular conferences, do talk with the IR guys, but can't really get in the rooms anymore. Okay. So you're now you've moved on to the administrative world uh doing yeah i'm not sure it's, i'm not sure it's a better world but but okay it's different okay all right well maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about yourself maybe some of your hobbies things you like to do outside of well i guess the office now yeah well covid is obviously the seismic event of our mm -hmm. lifetime and consequently i don't get to do a lot of the things I really like to do. A uh, little background, I was brought up in the Midwest. Both of my parents were teachers. I was brought up in South Bend where my father was a high school principal. After high school, I was one of nine kids, sort of basically a quota system that got accepted to Harvard. And it was very surprising that that little bond of all those Hoosiers, although it was less than 10, has remained very strong over the years. And uh, some of my best friends are still from that, that group. Then I went to uh, Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. I remember when I went to interview at various medical schools at that time, which was a long time ago, Brian, that uh, Texas was kind of chic. You know, there were all these barbecues, mm -hmm. you know, gillies and all this sort of stuff. And it just seemed very cool and sort of active to me. And Baylor was a very good school. I, I enjoyed my time there. I stayed on and as a chief uh, resident in internal medicine. And then after that, after internal medicine, I went to UCSF and did a pulmonary fellowship, okay, a critical care fellowship. And that was very interesting because that was just at the start of AIDS. And in that way, your one-year clinical rotation, I spent my first six months at Moffitt Hospital and then three months at the VA and three months at San Francisco General. When I started the year, I was bronching young AIDS victims, and there was just zero protection. Think of the PPE now for COVID. Back then, oh. AIDS, no one knew what we were dealing with, and we were doing bronchilavages, you know, all this stuff, and we had zero protection. By the end of the year, when I got to the hospital, I looked like a spaceman. It was complete overkill. You know, I was in these, you know, complete hazmat suits and everything else, and I always kept thinking, Geez, what was going on like, you know, nine months ago? Wow. Swung to the <laughs> other side. Yeah. During that first six months, uh, up straight at Moffitt, I had to spend a lot of time in the chest reading room. And the actual head of 
chest radiology at that time. He later moved on to Cornell, was uh, a guy who was from South Africa named Gordon Gamsu. Those who may have been at New York Hospital at Cornell may certainly remember him. And about the last month or so, he came up to me. He said, do you, do you ever think about radiology? Yeah. And I said, no, why, why in the world would I ever think about radiology? So I went home and was kind of trying to figure that all out. And quite frankly, I realized that my life of time, a lot of my time spent at the pulmonary clinic was not as gratifying as I might hoped it to be because a lot of the illness I was dealing with was self-inflicted and mm. was a lot of motivation to actually do lifestyle or behavior yeah. modification. So I went back after a couple of days and I said, Gordon, oh, what were you thinking? Yeah. As you may remember at that time, Alex Margulis was the chair of radiology there. And this was sort of the epicenter of MR. People's careers were being made by simply recapitulating all the studies that were initially done with CT, but doing them with MR and clinically. I mean, he said, well, look, if you'd like to start at the end of the year in the residency of radiology, I've got a spot for you and we might even be able to cut off a year. And I said, wow, well, that's interesting. Let me think about it. And I went back and it only took less than 12 hours this time. And I came back the next day and he said, I'm up for it. So. And which program was this again? UCSN. Okay. So basically I was on the 30th of June, I was a pulmonary fellow on July one, I was a radiology resident and I sort of took him up on his offer about considering whether I should shave a year off because I was getting a lot of training that year. And so I said, well, look, the last thing I want to be is kind of a half-baked radiologist. I'm going to go to a few conferences, see really what they're talking about. What do I think? So I went and Two conferences, morning conference, noon conference, which is basically old school, unknowns, <laughs> you know, a differential diagnosis. And everybody, every faculty member, including Dr. Margolis, participated. Hot seats, basically going around the room. It, no, there was a hot seat, you know, so you were called up and sat in the hot seats. Yeah. Hot seat, just as an aside, was something that came from the University of Virginia from the under there. If you go in the University of Virginia Rotunda, Thomas Jefferson's, you know, architectural, you know, gifted humanity. <laughs> First floor, there are three oval rooms inside a circular drum. And one of them at the end is where they used to, you know, sort of basically test the PhD students on their thesis and basically, you know, put them through their paces. And at one end of the room, there was a fireplace. And that's basically where the PhD candidate sat. And that was the hot seat. So... Never knew that. Yeah. And so the hot seat, you're in the hot seat, and I was watching this guy, and it was a bone film. It was actually a hip. And the guy said, well, I'm going to narrow my diagnosis to EG or PBNS. And I said, how the hell can I have gotten through this much training and not even know two diseases? I don't even know what he's talking about. What if he's EG, PBNS? Welcome to radiology. <laughs> so I went to Gordon and said, look, I don't dare take a year off. Just sign me up year one. Let's go. And that was a great experience. Oh boy, we had so much fun. That's what a great. wonderful what a wonderful group at that time. Right time, right place, right colleagues. It was great. That's great. That's that, that's a great story. Now tell me, when did IR come into the picture and and what mentors kind of helped you steer you in that direction? 
Well, even though I was in love with radiology, I did still miss, you know, some clinical touchstone. I missed, I missed patient contact and I couldn't quite see myself in a dark room all day, you know, not having any, you know, you know, when you're in the, in the reading room and you just want to ask these questions sometimes because you can make a difference at what you basically dictated, but there's right. to ask the questions too. So obviously at that time at UCSF and Moffitt Hospital, Ernie Rang had come maybe three years before, two years before, and was already making a monumental impact. I mean, nobody on the West Coast was, at least in California, was had the same basically stature and was doing these amazing things that he was. And uh, so I did my IR rotation and he would sort of pick from those who wanted to go into IR. Fortunately, my year, there weren't that many. He did, he'd always get his pick of the litter. So he asked me if I do IR and I said, sure, I'm really excited. And so, you know, after I graduated my residency, I just went, stayed on. I didn't even interview anywhere else, which in retrospect, I probably should have just to get to know people and understand a little more, but you know, I'd say things turned out. Okay. Yeah. So I stayed on at UCSF, did my fellowship there, which was a tremendous experience. There's nothing more emotional than being a first assistant to Ernie Ring when he's doing a de novo PTCD, you know, and you know, it was high drama to this day. I can't understand why it was such high drama, but I got to tell you, it was high drama. You were sweat bullets the whole time. I mean, I look back at that, I think it, God, it didn't quite have to be so emotional, you know, but it was. Right. And now what made it high drama, you think? Ernie made it high drama, you know? Okay. It was just personality. God forbid you let loose of the wire. God forbid, you know, all these other things, you know? Oh, gosh. Two or three steps ahead. And of course, your game was to prep at least one step ahead. So, you know, he wouldn't have to wait. He'd be, he'd have what he needed his disposal right there, you know? So it was a mental game more than a physical game or, you know, try, I mean, you didn't have to do that much except you know, anticipate, be alert, get him what he needed. And obviously anyone who ever trained at him was just impressed by the man. And he was, yeah, my first mentor. It clearly had a major impact on my entire life. But I got lucky after that too, Brian, because when I finished, I went over to San Francisco General and did, ran IR there for six months, but I knew that doing trauma for the rest of my life was not kind of what I wanted to do. Yeah at a county hospital. And so at that time, the best private IR group in the Bay Area was Marin General. And they were doing all sorts of incredibly entrepreneurial things, but mostly with MR. They didn't really care about IR. And so I went over there. I tried to start the IR program and we got going. We were doing some great things, but I'd be downstairs till like eight in the morning till four in the afternoon. I'd come back and there'd be this huge stack of IVPs, CTs, and brought my little heart that I had no knowledge, you know, that was just expected, you know? Right. It wasn't much acceptance that I was actually working when I was downstairs. <laughs> but the list kept building. He, and, you know, I, I kind of gutted it for a while because I was thinking, look, these other guys, even though they're sitting in a dock in the box imaging center, they're signing all these deals with, I mean, international people. Because wow. it's not firmly established. And, uh, as long as we were getting a slice in the action, I was 
okay, well, this is not bad. <laughs> one day, you know, about four months in, they came and we had a group meeting and they said, look, this isn't really fair. We're doing all this work. We're getting all these contracts. Those should come to us and, you know, the group, rest of the group should really equally share. At which point I, well, that's one less motivation. <laughs> and so I, I sort of talked to, at that time, I don't know if I talked to Ernie or Ernie called me and he said, look, my best friend in the world is in a jam. He needs some help. And I, I think you could help him. And I said, really? So who's that? He said, Barry Katz. Oh, wow. He started this, this, you know, vascular Institute in Miami. And there was a guy down there who sort of, you know, basically part of the diagnostic group, but he thought he could train him up and it's just, he needs some more help basically. And so I went down there, interviewed with Barry, my wife and I, Judy, we went out in his boat. One thing led to another. And so that was my, you know, so. First six months, I was at San Francisco General. The next four or five months, I was at Marin General. And then I was right down to the Miami Vascular Institute. And so I was his first uh, partner that he hired. And obviously, we weren't partners in a sense of equal. You know, I was learning. From already, I'd learned all this incredible non-vascular stuff, which I don't think I just wish I'd been kept on with because it was so valuable. And there were so many great pearls and and incredible insights that Ernie conveyed at non-vascular. And they had the best of the vascular world, Barry Katz. And, you know, I was making a fair amount of money for, you know, one year out. And uh, and we were part of the group, and that was <laughs> fine. And after about three years, I sort of, sort of looked at it, and I was, you know, with the sort of escalated stairs-up of salary, I was sort of thinking, this is going to be a golden handcuff in another six months. Mm. And is this where I want to be? Is this what I want to do? And so I talked with Barry and that's when I went back West. And at the time, again, Lou Wexler was at Stanford, but he had cut his teeth and his whole program was cardiac and coronary angio. Gerhard Wittich was there doing a lot of non-vascular work, but nobody was really doing bleeding edge vascular, peripheral vascular. And so that's when I went to Stanford as the section chief. And uh, that was a great run. And I did that. Let's just get this right. <laughs> I finished my fellowship in 87. Would have been about 90. Okay. And, uh, and so you're, you're at Stanford, your section chief at this point? Yeah. We had at the time, uh, you know, three fellows. Part of their task involved actually cardiac radiology, coronary angio, et cetera. Although clear the writing was on the wall, coronary angio, angio is going to be subsumed soon by the cardiologist. But, you know, we, there was now, there was, you know, we had one digital room. Most of the workaday rooms were basically, uh, you know, film changer, Schrodinger film changer. You know, we'd have to punch our own cards to deliver the program we wanted in tunes of films per second you know, photographic subtractions. Yeah. And that's when I first had my first incredible collaboration with people outside of radiology. And that was with the cardiac surgeons. We started out with that by dealing with peripheral vascular complications of aortic dissection. So mesenteric ischemia, obviously renal obstruction, iliac artery, you know, 
basically malperfusion, et cetera. And we helped them out a lot. And that was our ticket into the aorta. And so we would see all these incredible films. And what I realized early on, Brian, is a lot of the understanding was in textbooks, not only pathology, but also surgical textbooks was based on drawings from surgical exposure or postmortem examinations where everything was just flaccid. The main, most important aspect of aortic dissection had been removed from the equation and that was flow. So all these pictures that we could then see with, with angio and what was going on, you know, nobody who was a surgeon or a pathologist had obviously observed. And so these, we kept having all these discrepancies between what we were seeing and what was in the textbooks. And so we were describing this and about this time, which was about 91 or 92, I had another, I guess the first real experience that gave us insight into this. And that was basically spiral CT. And you probably don't know that, but at, we had a, a, the first Siemens spiral CT unit in the U.S. It was out in a parking lot. And one of the cardiovascular non-invasive imagers was a guy named Jeff Rubin. He used to be the uh, chair at Duke. And now I've, he just started in October and I hired him as, we hired him here as the uh, chair of medical imaging here at the University of Virginia. And he, uh, he said, look, I want to do this new machine. I'd like to really look at it and look at ways. And he said, I, I want to look at pulmonary embolus. I think it's very important because, you know, all these BQ scans, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, Jeff, that's a great idea. And it's a real need, but the goddamn machine is out in a parking lot. I don't think we can take patients who are critically ill and sort of wheel them out into a parking lot, you know, let's think of something else. And so I said, how about renal artery stenosis? we don't have a great way to really, you know, screen for that. You know? mm. And so maybe we could look at that. So we got a bunch of patients and the first patient we went in, the thing came, the, you know, we scanned it with a spiral CT and uh, the images started to come out and Jeff said, you got to come look at this. I've never seen anything like it. And it was basically, you know, the, the, you know, these were spiral CT images where they were the, the type that, you know, in the old days, you would see the sort of amorphous surface renderings, you know, so it wasn't like the high definition, you know, of the vessel itself, but they were surface renderings, but they were like nothing anyone had ever seen. So we started calling Siemens. And to this day, if you had to play Russian roulette and bet, I bet that they had no idea what sort of potential they had at that time, you know? Wow. Just nobody had ever done it before. Right. The whole idea of spiral CT was predicated to be able to scan through the lungs without having to re-register because someone couldn't hold their breath, right? So if you wanted to look at a PE or a small mass, now you could do it, right? Right. What about vascular application? They didn't think about contrast flow and that the timing of that would be even more important. That was it. You got it. So that was the... That was a whole thing, and that generated a whole bunch of articles. And then, of course, it coexisted. This this was the real, this was the real mother load of productivity. Was ninety one, ninety two, ninety three, where we were just right place, right time, dump luck, completely fortunate. Everything we test to touch turned to light. Papers, you know. Wow. I did some of the ridiculous, you know. So in the end, you know, that was the most productive time. Wow. Crazy. I mean, did so, of course, going on at that time was 
Juan Perotti. And Juan Perotti, we were certainly aware of his annals and surgery article about the first stent graft treating abdominal aortic aneurysm. And no one was kind of aware of the guy in basically in the Ukraine. Obviously, that was something that was kind of totally shrouded from us. I mean, nobody had any contact with anyone in the Ukraine, but certainly we, we, were knew, we knew of Perotti. So the difference between Perotti and, and clearly what we were seeing, what we eventually found out in the, in the Ukraine was that they saw stents as basically anastomotic surrogates. They weren't really thinking like a radiologist. As radiologists, we saw a stent as really something that would in line and completely support from top to bottom a conduit like a graft, okay? So everything they say that comes out of surgery came out as a, as, you know, the parody was just a basically palma stent on the top to begin with. There was not even a one on the bottom. And so that was, you know, something that was just, it's just the way it was. It was, it was just that I thought, God, how is this thing going to be able to be delivered with self-expanding? And again, Perotti was a balloon expandable stent graft. And we, of course, favored self-expanding. How can you deliver this by pushing it in without having a stent provide some columnar strength so you wouldn't concertina the whole thing or accordion it as you, mm-hmm. as you pushed it in? And, uh, you know, that was a, a real, uh, you know, it was just something that seemed so natural as a radiologist, but wasn't really natural as a, you know, for the surgeons. And so, so this was, to, so this was kind of, was this your first foray, you would say, into how do we make this work from a device standpoint? Yeah. And we did some animals. I did some animals up in, at the daughter with Hans Timmermans and Barry Yoshida in the animal labs. And we helped, they helped us construct these and moved them down to us. And of course, later on, we, we were aware that Nikolai Volados actually had placed a stent graft in the thoracic aorta before we did. And he did it obviously before Perotti in 1984. Well, actually it was a little after 84. His first experiment was 84. And, but again, did about 14 of these Bryant's and it's because he was continually met with this problem of how can you push this thing in? His was self-expanding, mm-hmm. but stents only on the top and bottom. So his solution was to do a, a, you know, a sternotomy and basically grab the thing out of the aortic arch and pull it up. So it would basically iron the thing out as you're pulling it up. Oh, ours. We didn't have to deal with anything like that because ours was completely stent- stented. And we would just push it in. So we did our first case in July 92, and I'll never forget it. It wasn't probably the most ideal case, but the aneurysm was very impressive. It was a guy who was fairly young, late 40s, who had had a, a coarctation of the aorta that had been surgically repaired, but now had a pseudo Well, actually, you couldn't really tell if it was a true, uh, true aneurysm on the opposite side um, the patch graft, or if it was a patch graft pseudoaneurysm, I never really figured it out, but it was a huge, big ball. Yeah. And, but he had all the sequelae, all the telltale stigmata of coartation. He had a very hypoplastic transverse arch, this absolutely giant 
spatulated origin of the left stuff clavian and and you know so without much of a net in retrospect probably the best thing to do would have been to go partially over this huge subclavian but you know we didn't know anything about anything like that at the time and so since our tank was sort of introduced to a very large sheet a cooked sheet that was either 22 or 24 French sheet dilator system put up in place. So it's distal end was at the proximal location of where we wanted the drop zone and the proximal neck for the stent grafts. And then we'd load the stent graft through a combination of sutures into this loading capsule, which would then get transferred through a valve by a pusher rod, which is basically the dilator with its tapered tip amputated and just pushed up. Well, okay. You, done similar things, maybe not quite as large, but, you know, with the same sort of operation and uh, like Z stents, if you will. And so we pushed the thing up and all of us, and, and we had, we had the, the Stedgram in the, or the, excuse me, the delivery sheet in the arch, because of course the sheet went in over a dilator, which was over a wire, but the stent graft itself was pushed in non over a wire. So we pushed it in and it got all the way up to, you know, maybe the, between the carotid and the subclavian, but we couldn't deploy it there. So we started to pull it back. And as we pulled it back, the thing just, you know, just sprang into this huge subclavian. Okay. Oh yeah. The, the tip of the stent graft and the delivery sheet are literally about three centimeters into the subclave. Now that was, I, I just sort of said, I don't know that we can do this, you know? And the surgeon, Craig Miller, who is an incredible reputation as a thoracic aortic surgeon and still is operating today at Stanford, said, do it. And I said, what? He goes, just do it. And I said, what? But, you know, look, Craig, the worst thing that can happen is we're going to put a graph between a subclavian and the distal aorta completely occlude the aorta. You do understand that. Do it. Do it. You know, so, okay. And so, and this guy was basically betadine from his toes to his ears. He was ready for, for anything. That's swimming pool with, you know, brown betadine. And so, we pulled back the sheet, the thing deployed, and it ended up absolutely perfect. In fact, to my eye, and now with the, the, you know, the, the benefit of time, it was almost too perfect. I wish it had been much more proximal, sort of over the subclavian because there was no downside from that. But it was right at the distal, you know, margin of the left subclavian. And that was like on a Monday, I think. And at that time, Ernie Ring ran the Angio Club. And about, I'd say close to 65 to 70% of the people who would attend that Angio Club, Ernie had trained. And, you know, I, 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 we did have, because the surgeons at UCSF, the vascular surgeons, weren't as collaborative as they were at Stanford at the time. And again, that's because the vascular surgeons at Stanford did vascular sort of as a sideline. Their main thing was cardiac yeah. and thoracic aorta. We didn't even have vascular surgery then, which is, again, a miracle for me. And so I got all the films. I had to make all these with our dark room techs, make all the photographic subtractions. And again, when you went to Angie Club in those time, <laughs> days, everything was done on an overhead projector. And we, and I went up with maybe two fellows and we were racing up from the peninsula because we wanted to show this, you know? Right. But no, this was like, no one knew. There was no premonition. There was no, no one had any idea we were doing this. 
And there wasn't, of course, IRB approval at that time or anything else. I mean, there was recently within the last year or eight months, there was this idea this guy in Argentina had done this, but no one had done anything else. Certainly no one had done any grass here. So they were shown, you know, abscess drainages, <laughs> catheters and stuff. And we came sort of in the back door and you now it's a pretty good crowd there. And Ernie, of course, sat in the front and would comment on all the cases. And so any more cases? And so I said, yep, we got some here. So I would snap it. I showed this case and it was such an impressive aneurysm, which went from this giant circle ball to nothing. And there was just absolute, no one knew what they were looking at. It was just, you know, what? It was magic at that point. It probably looked like magic. And he left the room. Then he just left. He just left. He just left. And that's, he went for a smoke or what? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a very surprising thing to see during an angioclay, I imagine. Well, and finally he came back and he, he, he couldn't basically comprehend what he was seeing. And I mean, today it doesn't sound like much, but back then I don't think what it just didn't make any sense, you know? Right. But, so that was 92. And then we sort of just ran with it and then ran, you know, I, I could have Brian been a lot faster on the dissection take up because mm. we knew so much about dissection, but in the back of my mind, I kept thinking, okay, some of these organs come off the false lumen. Am I really sure that I cover the primary tear with mm. those organs that exclusively come off the true lumen just won't get corked off? Right. And if they don't get corked off, then the flow will go across, but it'll fill the false lumen retrograde. Well, a point of fact, we all know that now, but at the time I use that as a reason to kind of be very prudent and cautious. I didn't go forward as fast as I should have, but we still got it done you know, basically before anyone else. And then, so both those ended up in the New England Journal. And there was a lot of other stuff going on at the time. I mean, from, you know, venous uh, thrombolysis. Nobody ever heard of that, you know? We we had a very aggressive Abbott rep at the time. And of course, people did arterial grafts. They did arteries. But it just right place, right time, you know? So tell me with the, with the graphs, did you, did you end up filing any patents? Did you got, did you try to work with industry? What was kind of the industry side of that? We were working very closely with the daughter and they of course were heavily supported by Cook. So our basic uh, building block was a Cook Z-Stent. Okay. And basically Cook got, finally got a little scared and said, holy crap. They're transporting these things across state line from Oregon to California, where they're being implanted. We could be up for some, you know, regulatory issues here. Mm -hmm. So they put a stop to it. So then I moved in the next phase was having tons of Japanese fellows come over who basically we created just a cottage industry, a fabrication shop where we just made our own. Wow. And, uh, you know, right now, I'll tell you, Brian, I have over 45 patents. I think the sum total of money I've made out of all 45 is probably not more than four digits, okay? Wow. Just nothing. I didn't go into it for that. Many of the patents I have were because I was involved in some of the ideas. But, you know, in retrospect, yeah, missed opportunity. Yeah, I should have been a little more savvy. But the stuff was coming so fast and it just, it was almost like, okay, 
That's done. Next. What's next? You know, we had one paper, paper came out, use of vascular stents for the treatment of carotid arteries and cerebral venous structures. I mean, let's five papers right there. We just put out the first paper and had, you know, four uh, central vein cases that we did with wall stents in transverse sinuses for benign intracranial hypertension. But we just happened to marry that with carotid stents for stenotic disease and pseudoaneurysm. Yeah, the first is wow. all three just in one article. That's why no one quotes it because no one kind of understands what it is. <laughs> the combination. Not idle of all this stuff, but we had to get it out. Okay, what's next? You know? Wow. I mean, it's just that very fertile time. That sounds very productive. That was facilitated by the fact that, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, you know, at the time we didn't have quite the same regulatory oversight that now exists. And so consequently to operate that we, you know, allowed us to do a lot of things. So tell me what, uh, you've had so many successes. I think it would be impossible to go through, through all of them. What was one of your failures that, and what would you, what have you learned from that through your career? What's one failure that sticks with you and, and what'd you learn from it? Well, I think there's device failures, which I'm trying to think what I might've learned from it. And then they're all sort of, also sort of relationship failures. And I, I, I'm a very collaborative guy and I was willing to collaborate with anyone. I'm a firm believer that you want to hire people who are smarter than you are. You want to work with people who are smarter than you are. And if they're willing to, you could do great things. But I soon realized that a lot of people don't think exactly that way. And they really need to have complete control. Mm. And uh, even if that in some way doesn't facilitate moving forward at a pace that could have been realized otherwise. Mm. One of those areas was neuro. We had a bit, and nothing against our neuro guys at Stanford, but they were very protective. And after we did these cases, I saw tremendous opportunities, but they were not interested in having IR involved in that, you know? Really? In what cases, what did you see? What did you see at the time that? Carotid cases. Mm -hmm. Could you see that these, these, I mean, the Venus case, you know, at that time, wall stents didn't have delivery catheter links that you could go from the groin to the transverse sinus. And so our first case, I said, okay, we're going to have to go from the jugular up. And, you know, the, the new guys weren't used to any of this stuff. So we were... You know, we, we were truly bringing them some, some help. And uh, this was a, a law student from Emory University. And every time she went in the law library at Emory, she had just this incredibly buzzing, humming tinnitus that was so distracting and so completely, you know, annoying. She, she, she just couldn't deal with it. So she came to us. So we actually put her to sleep, punctured her right jugular went up. The right jugular was the symptomatic side and which made sense. So I did angios of both sides and it turned out that the symptomatic side was less narrow. The asymptomatic side on the left was very narrow. And so I sort of thought what she's doing, she's shunting all this blood to uh, the right side and it's narrowed for sure, just not to the same severity. And that's why she's so symptomatic on that side. <laughs> so 
we went up with a standard filiary wall stent and placed it in transverse sinus. She woke up from anesthesia, completely asymptomatic, gone. Wow. Like someone turned the light switch off. And, you know, you could see a lot of opportunities there, but it wasn't just neuro. You know, I'm sure we've all experienced this with other specialties, perhaps most notably notably in some institutions, vascular surgery, where you really thought a partnership could do great things, you know? But, you know, that's one thing I learned. And you just have to let it go. It just have to let it go. On the device side, clearly, I think turning our device in into something that was truly over the wire, that brought more safety into things, that brought more controlled delivery, because those first devices were kind of, you know, pull and shriek, you know, it was not that much control. Obviously, if you had a nice, generous proximal and distal neck, didn't matter so much. But if you got down to some tight margins on the neck, you know, it could be very uh, sort of tension producing. And that anxiety just wasn't really necessary. Mm -hmm. And interiorization, we're still too big, you know, but those are the things that I think you learn from. And on the device side, it's always interesting. And you just keep working, keep working and, you know, keep, you know, improving each new iteration. Yeah, that's great. And, and so these days, what are you working on now? Any devices or startups or anything that you have your hand in? Well, I, I just sort of, as I said, had gone into activity that was mostly aortic, but once I, I sort of stopped, stepped back from that, I got involved in some, I really attracted Brian to projects where there's not a lot of other people splashing around and flailing in the same lane, you know? The blue ocean spaces. Fast followers right on your heels. You know, I like to have some freedom to sort of, you know, do so. What am we involved in? I'm involved in some sort of novel embolic things, including a very novel liquid embolic, which is a natural occurring substance which I think addresses some of the limitations of current products on the market. Hopefully that'll be out at trial next year. I think first in man will probably get done this year, but OUS. And then interesting things with drug dilution and interesting things with some very interesting expanding coils. So those are some of the things that I'm kind of, you know, working with where it, it's, it's, they're not, they're a little off the main fairway, you know, they're not in the rough, but they're, they're just not something that, you know, there are a hundred people working. on. And it seems like if I could say over your career, you've always been involved in novel, innovative things. And would you say that that's been a, a definition of your career going through is always trying to improve things, always trying to make it better? Well, I think I'm attracted to uh, those opportunities that have creative solutions to current limitations, how we can adapt current techniques and make them more applicable, safer, more effective. Those are the type of things that really attract me. But as I said, I'm really attracted to things that are, 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 are big steps forward, you know, not so much. Not incremental moves. Not you want part of disruptive big leaps or grids or stuff like that. No, that's great. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, so what else do you think uh, we should know about you? Any other? The one thing I got to give a shout out, I shouted out to Ernie, as I mentioned, uh, huge impact on my career at Barry Katzen. 
seminal work, and I was blessed and fortunate to be able to learn from him. And then when I got longer on my career, I did something that uh, was my third mentor. It's kind of late in his career and at a point in my career where I wasn't really going to learn anything like a sabbatical from someone who was going to teach me some technique like a sabbatical like be today. I, uh, but I wanted the opportunity to really go focus on something. And Barry had spent, I think, six months early in his career when he was around St. Vincent's, New York, and gone to Italy, where Plinio Rossi was really doing, you know, leading-edge work then. And so I wrote Plinio, and we agreed that I'd come over for a year with my whole family. So I was based in Rome and uh, at Policlinico Umberto Primo, the uh, University Sapienza and uh, La Sapienza. I would go to work in the morning, but my real thing was in Italy is working with, at that time, Gore, there was a network. So every morning I knew if there was a dissection anywhere in Italy from the day before. So some days I wouldn't even go into work. I'd get a call as soon as I'd get up, I'd be eating breakfast. Some guy said, there's type B dissection in Brescia. And I'd say, okay, and go out to the airport, you'll have a ticket, go. So I'd fly up there, get there about 11, go meet the family, do the case. After the case, go out with the, the treatment team, have a great Italian meal. Wow. So I did that for 365 days. Wow. That I knew every Italian interventionalist and vascular surgeon and cardiologist who had any interest in aortic interventions. Plus, I had a huge repertoire of cases under my belt now after a whole year of just doing this every day. Nobody had the luxury to do that. Nobody had a case a day. And I had this diet that really allowed me to become very confident, secure, and comfortable with the pathology, the physiology, how to treat the judgment required. And when was this? That was uh, basically 1999-2000. Wow. And did tell me, do you speak any Italian now? No, I, I, I had did a little and all my kids went to Italian schools for the whole year. But for my family's sake, I think we all look back very fondly with memories that I think may have been the best year of our collective life. It was, it was something that, you know, you move your whole family. I mean, a lot of people don't, how would you do that? How do you get a work permit in Italy? How do you get malpractice insurance? How do you do all this stuff? Well, you don't do it unless you actually take the first step and say, I'm going to do it, you know? So, you know, it was, uh, it was a great experience. Well, that's a fantastic story. All right. As we wrap up here, tell me, just want to ask, what is your favorite procedure to do these days? Or what was your favorite procedure? I guess I could say, you know, I, I not sure it's so much the procedures, but the whole soup to nuts from planning to procedure to follow up to perhaps necessary retreatment of aortic dissection. There's nothing that sort of, I think, represents what an endovascular carpenter can be to a better degree. I mean, that, you know, I mean, for surgeons, they just didn't have the background of looking at a CT scan and consequently did a lot of things by rote just because they were told to do it, whatever. And they'd say, they, you know, the right renal's out. I said, well, how's it out? What's the involvement? And he said, you know, occluded by a flap going into it is occluded by the aortic flap over it. 
They didn't know anything about that, you know? And still, I think that interventional radiologists have so much to offer that evaluation and analysis. So that's, that's a tremendous thing. Then being in there and doing the procedure, and then, you know, in this day and age, the opportunity to actually treat, and you're no, and you know, the, now with large series of patients, we, have, we had large series of both descending thoracic, non-dissected aneurysms, chronic dissections, ruptures, which clearly prove, as opposed to the abdominal aorta, that an endovascular approach is far superior with greater all-cause freedom from death than open surgery. Now, why is that? Well, it's because in a thoracic aorta, you have these potential for these very generous necks. I mean, you know, these like focal, you know, aortic ulcers or sort of saccular anteriors with big necks. Anxious are not going to live to a point where they dilate anywhere else. When in the abdominal aorta, you know, you have necks that are 15 millimeters, 12 millimeters. People are even treating 10 millimeters now. And so that's potential that if the patient lives long enough, there could be, you know, some, some problems downstream. So, you know, that's why the thoracic aorta, I think, is just a perfect sort of landscape for practice of thoracic for practice of stent graft. So that's probably my best, my most favorite case. Definitely seems to have, have it all. So last question, what's the most exciting development you see, uh, you're president of SIR, what do you see coming down the pipe for endovascular procedures? What are you excited about in the world of endovascular? Great question. I think obviously the whole pack attacks all dust up has put a real sort of, I think, uh, damper, perhaps break on peripheral vascular intervention that we're still not completely out the other end of the tunnel on, but we will be. But there also, it's, of course, caused a lot of other inventive solutions to come forward. And although initially, I think the potential for a biodegradable stent was extremely well-received, I mean, that's the ultimate, it'd leave nothing behind. Obviously, the first trials were not that, I think, enthusiastically received. But now, there are a whole bunch of biodegradable stents coming and a whole bunch of strategics looking at trial possibilities. So, new drugs, new deliveries, new, you know, and these, and these biodegradable stents aren't going to be just stents. They're going to be drug-eluting stents. And so, that there will be no just plain biodegradable stents. So it might be the best of all worlds coming down the track. And then, of course, I think, uh, obviously, some of our ability to recanalize peripheral vessels in patients with CLI is at a point that it's never been at before. And that, to me, extremely exciting. Absolutely. Well, that's fantastic. Dr. Dake, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, We really appreciate your time and we're excited to see what comes next. Well, thanks a lot, Brian. I hope I didn't talk too much, but... No, that was perfect. That was perfect. Okay. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it.